want us to remember two families in prayer today, okay? Uh, Anita McKimmon family, Kirk and family, uh, the passing of Anita's mother, and Rick Plotz and the passing of his nephew uh, at only age 37. I want to remember these families in prayer as we go through uh, this upcoming month as they grieve. Matthew 5 and 4 says, Mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be what? Comforted. And that's part of our responsibility as a family to lift one another up. The McKims, Anita McKim, and Rick Plotz and family. <clears throat> okay, so uh, my message got hijacked. Had a pretty good message, and uh, the Lord just hijacked it. So that's his prerogative. So um, we are going to get back to this idea of the name, and we're going to have an altar call after this message. Uh, if you've not been to the altar recently in your life, maybe in your life, in your walk, your new walk, your re renewed walk, I want to encourage you between now and the end of this message um, to ask the Lord what, what he could do at this altar. It is at the altar that the Lord alters you. I want you to look at it that way. So I'm gonna invite you to the altar today for prayer and to pray over you, elders to come and lay hands on you and uh, our healing team to come and lay hands on you. If you have a need for healing or salvation, provision, or even deliverance of some things in your life, I want you to consider coming to the altar. There's your, there's your warning, there's your, there's your preparation. Okay, we're talking about the quintessence of God, um, which in Latin means um, what is not without. What are the essential characters or essence of who God is that have to be included in your definition of him for he doesn't exist as we know him apart from these essentials, quint, quint, quintessence. What essence are we talking about today? And that basically is this idea of servitude. You cannot think of God, you can't interact with God, you can't truly worship God in spirit and in truth without taking into consideration and understanding and, and defining him as a servant. Not our definition of a servant, his definition of a servant. We, many of us today, have a definition of what a servant is. As, as wonderful as that is, as important we may think that is, it's not as important and not as wonderful as his definition of a servant. So if we are to understand who God is and worship him for all eternity, we must take into account he as a servant. By taking into account he as his servant, we then have a response. Am I willing, as a follower of Christ, am I willing to be that servant too, as he defines it? The answer may be no. And for many people, the answer is no. Because he gives us that freedom to choose. But the real answer, the true answer, the one we're irrevocably called to is a yes. I will be 
that servant as you are that servant. And this is part of the quintessence of God. It cannot in any way, shape, or form be left out to be a true servant of God. What does that mean? Philippians 2 and 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He took on the very nature of a servant. It's the first thing we hear about him in the book of Philippians. He willingly and by the command of his father positioned himself to be nothing and take on the very nature of a servant. Uh, two words in the New Testament for servant. One is uh, doulos, and the other, which means bond slave, and the other is diakonos, where we get the word deacon. They're basically synonyms. They mean the same thing. James Packer in Your Father Loves You uh, wrote this in 1986. Servant in our English New Testament usually represents the Greek doulos, bond slave. Sometimes it means diakonos, deacon or minister. This is strictly accurate, for doulos and diakonos are synonyms. Both words denote a man who is not at his own disposal, but is his master's purchased property. Say what? Like, say to this culture, who spends an inordinate amount of energy and time, and rightly so, Bringing social reform in areas of the world where there exists slavery, you know, man can enslave other men. It's, that's not what God's talking about. But in that context, say to the masses, my goodness gracious, you have to remember something. <laughs> You're a slave. Americans don't want to hear that, and they certainly don't want to hear it from the pulpit. You're actually a slave to your Lord that actually was purchased. This is interesting. Now, we have words for God. Jesus is one of them, and boy, haven't we accentuated that one today. Ancient of days, a bright and morning star, the bishop of your soul, and all of these wonderful um, names that depict the quintessence of God. But names that are probably used the least, if we really understood them, were probably words like master. <laughs> Master's not a big one. Uh, master was, uh, the disciples used that to, to basically mean teacher. But master has all kind of connotations. We don't like using that one. Lord, yes, we use it, but I'm not sure we use it understanding what it actually means. We'll cover that near the end of the year this year. How to live in victory under the lordship of Christ. So master, Lord, I don't know. They're not as popular as some of the things that have inherently more benefits to us by saying them and believing them. But the truth of the matter is, you're called to be a servant as Christ is a servant, who took on the very nature of a servant, and he purchased you. America is where the culture, and rightly so, we have the Bill of Rights, we have the Constitution, we have this incredible democracy, but it's all about our rights. Well, when you come to Christ, I don't know, it takes a person half their lifetime to figure this out. You really don't have any rights. It's not like you have a right to forgiveness. You didn't do anything to deserve that. It hasn't been given to you. You have to believe. You have to trust. So, yeah, this is a whole new way of looking at 
who you are in relation to Christ. Now, you're also the apple of the eye of God, and he also loves you with an everlasting love, and you're also a child, but let's not, let's not miss the fact you can't just excise one part of the definition of a relationship with Christ and all of us say, he's not my master, I don't need to obey him, and he, I own my own life, my own destiny. I, no, you don't. If you want the full package, let's get the full package. You don't. Your purchased property, ransomed by God, by his blood, bought to serve his master's needs, to be at the beck and call every moment, the slave's sole business is to do what he is told. I mean, that'll cost you attendance in the church. That'll blow people right out the back door. Christian service, therefore, means first and foremost, living out a, listen to this now, is Packer uh, on drugs, a slave relationship to one's savior. Now, our reaction to legalism and all that, whatever, can't swing so far, so far back the other way that you can do anything you want to. The fact remains, we're called to be slaves in a slave relationship to our savior. Now, are we gonna be successful in that? Look around the room, I don't think so. But that doesn't mean we negate it. It does mean we're forgiven when we don't, but it is our calling. Think about that. What work does Christ set his servants to do? The way that they serve him, he tells them, is by becoming the slaves of the fellow servants and being willing to do literally anything, however costly, irksome, or undignified, in order to help them. You mean you can't just put people down and make them go away? You have to, even though they irk you and they annoy you that we're here to serve and love them? Is that what he's calling us to? Is that in the Bible? You mean you just can't be like your common, secular, lost man or woman? Somehow you're supposed to stand out as light in the midst of darkness? Is that for real? If people annoy me or trouble me or... You mean I have to just keep loving them? This is ridiculous. Where is that? This is what love means, as he himself showed at the Last Supper when he played the slave's part and washed the disciples' feet. Oh yeah, there was that. Shoot. When the New Testament speaks of ministering to the saints, it means not primarily preaching to them, but devoting time, trouble, and substance to giving them all the practical help possible. The essence of Christian service is loyalty to the king expressing itself in care for his servants. A king should be more concerned for his subjects than anything. A righteous king who has a kingdom is more concerned about his peeps, the well-being of his people, the protection of his people, the, the prosperity of his people. Not himself, not herself. And God is that. He is king over the kingdom of God, and he is more concerned about his people or those who need to be his people, and he needs those who are in his kingdom to not be irked and repulsed by them, but to love them and to bring them into kingdom. That's a good king. We serve a good king. He is, in fact, he's the king of every king and the Lord of every Lord. So now, my servitude, my slave context that I actually operate in is more to serve others so they in turn can bring others in the kingdom. 
Only the Holy Spirit can create in us the kind of love toward our Savior that will overflow in imaginative sympathy and practical helpfulness towards his people. Unless the Spirit is training us in love, we are not fit persons to go on college or training class to learn the know-how or particular branches of Christian work. In other words, don't go to seminary if you don't have the love to actually do the work you're supposed to do when you get out. My gosh, you go to seminary without the love, you come out worse than when you went in. Gifted leaders who are self-centered and loveless are a blight to the church rather than a blessing. Wow, what a calling we have. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with it. But that's the point. We're not supposed to be comfortable with all things. You know, the greatest idol we worship in our culture is comfort. We, not only we worship it, we probably take it for granted. And convenience. Convenience probably has a high, high, high price that we don't even realize we're paying. Nonetheless, we're blessed. Our blessings in this culture are incredible. We have incredible blessings. But I wonder sometimes if we really thought about it, if somebody really whispered in our ear, if we'd really understand something. These blessings cost us something. Effort, insight, work, love, influence in other people's lives. I don't know, but we're richly blessed. I often wonder, why is the church that's persecuted growing the greatest in depth and resolve? And why is the church with no persecution sort of, kind of, not? It's interesting. I'm offering you today a paradigm shift in your understanding of the calling that's on your life as a, not a servant by our definition, but a true servant by God's. What does a true servant of God bring to the table? And the first thing I gotta tell you, it's their best. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. I'm sure you have. Many of you have probably eaten in a restaurant lately. <laughs> I'm guessing you have. There's, a, there's an expectation of a 20% tip to ring you up. To ring you up. I don't know. I don't like it. Because I can whine about this. I'm sure my wife gets tired of it. Why are we here paying for this meal and then at the end of the meal, I work for the actual restaurant as I bust my own table? That has confounded me to no end. I think even Jesus might have an issue with that. <laughs> Second Corinthians 11, 13 and 14. Finally, brothers, goodbye. No one ever reads this verse. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. A true servant of God will not tolerate mediocrity. It doesn't mean we don't run into it. It doesn't mean we're perfectionist. It doesn't mean we are judgmental or we're arrogant when we see it. But there is far too much mediocrity in this world. Far too much tepid performance. And there's far too less excellence than there should be. Excellence. 
excellence in any and everything you do. I'll tell you what, the Lord got me started on the servitude thing and I couldn't get away from it. It's like that song at Disney World at one of the, I'm not even gonna say it because it just keeps playing over and over. I was asked to speak for five or 10 minutes at a memorial service uh, Friday night for a woman who was a servant. Like, true servant. And one of the things her daughter told me, and, I, and I, did, I, I expected it, when she would make her cabbage rolls for a meal, she would start a day early to perfect them so that those that she fed got the best. Not a last minute frozen one, thawed out five minutes as they pulled into the driveway, the best cabbage roll you could make. That's a true servant. And the perfection of the actual meal itself was for the people, but she served food less than she served her Lord. Her hospitality and her cooking were secondary to the way in which she treated someone who came into the, her home because anyone she, that came into her home that she served, she ultimately was serving Christ the best. She aimed for perfection. You build a house, you sell a house, you write a contract, you write an article, you put something online, excellence. I expect excellence out of our staff. Do we always get it? No. But I can tell you these people are shooting for it as unto the Lord. A true servant of the Lord will not allow mediocrity into their life. Jesus wouldn't do it, nor should we. Mediocrity looks like entitlement. So I asked this daughter about her mother, and she, I know she's Ukrainian, I said, uh, what kind of borscht did she make? Two, first two words are the best. That's a true servant. Makes the best. Seeks for the best. Brings her best. And you know what? Sometimes in our life, our best isn't as good as it could be another time in our life. But we give the best with what we have. And if we don't have it, we still give our best. We make the best. We present the best. We do the best we possibly can. Even when our resources are low, it's our best. It's all relative. That's a true servant. When Jesus is on the seashore, he makes a campfire with coals and cooks fish for his disciples who he knows have been up all night, tired as they can be, probably smell horrible, wet and cold, and probably have this uh, weather, sleeping, foggy, hangover type thing going on. He makes the best meal you can make on the beach 
And many of you have been to this beach with me. We've stood there. He makes the best meal he can make on the beach with what he has. And number one, he makes it. He doesn't poof it up. He doesn't call down Elijah to dine and dash a breakfast into the beach. He makes it with his hands. And the, the quality with what he makes is in keeping with the compassion needed for these people, one of which has already betrayed him three times, and the emptiness of their bellies and the emptiness of their souls, he takes the best he can make as a servant of the Father and he makes it for them to meet their needs as though he was making it for the Father. That's a servant. A true servant of God is um, anonymous, invisible. I've been, in, I've been in enough hospitals in my life, not for myself personally, but I've seen it and I've, my family's been through tragedy and, and, and all kinds of trials in hospitals, but I know enough to know this. Nurses make the world go round. Hospice care people are in a totally different category than everyone else. And those who do a an excellent job of caring in assisted living facilities. I don't know. They got their own lounge in heaven. I don't know what they got. They're going to have their own lounge, their own whatever, and rightly so. These people are true servants, caregivers, those paid less than everyone else who do more than everyone else. Doctors are wonderful. For all the five-minute increments you actually talk with them, they're wonderful. But the nurse at 3 a.m., 8 a.m., meeting the needs in the middle of the afternoon, these are the people that are the true servants, in my opinion. And they're anonymous. Listen to this, Luke 22 and 27. For who is greater he who sits at the table, he who lounges at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? It is not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as one who serves. The person sitting at the table with the important dinner and everyone's all excited about who's coming and what popularity they have and what executives here and what, what man-pleasing person is here, what celebrity? Who's more important, Jesus said, the one who serves. The one who serves, anonymously, invisible, not to God, but to everyone else around them. I've struggled with this for many years. Mary and Martha. Martha was irritated because she's having to make the meal. Martha missed the point. Martha was trying to serve a meal she wasn't serving the Lord. If she knew she was serving the Lord, the meal would have been a privilege. We don't serve meals, we serve the Lord. This, this idea that there's a special sauce, there's a special ingredient needed. I don't know, I'll give you an example. I don't even know how to explain this. 
First of all, I am the laziest human being on the face of the earth when it comes to the kitchen. I would rather not eat than have to make a sandwich. That's the gospel truth. I would rather not eat. It's close. It's really close. I would rather not eat than have to pour a bowl of Cheerios. I have a God-given disdain for food preparation. I, I do. I don't want any part of it. I'd rather not eat. I would be just as happy to not eat dinner than to have to make it myself. In fact, one of the smartest things I ever did when I first got married is I chose to cook dinner for the family and I haven't done it since. <laughs> it was the wisest move I've ever made in my life. I opened up a can of stewed tomatoes and warmed them to a tepid, just above the can temperature and had some other God awful combination of things on that plate. It was so vile and disgusting, my family kept me out of the kitchen for all 30 years now. Brilliant. But my wife can take the very same ingredients that anyone else has in the world, and she can make a sandwich with the same ingredients that tastes 10 times better than someone who has the same ingredients and makes a sandwich on this side of the table. And I don't know why, but that's true. She knows the secret ingredient to making a sandwich. I don't know what it is other than it has to be love. And she makes an art of it and she spends her time doing it. So there's something deeply wrong with her in my estimation. Anyone that would put that much effort into doing something for another person is, I don't know, flawed in some way, but at the same time, brilliant. She can make a meal where she actually prepares it for a group of people. Some of you have eaten her food. You know what I'm talking about. You do not turn down an invitation. I don't care if you're in a coma. You're going to be at my house for dinner. We will wheel you up to the table and feed you. She puts something in the effort that makes the product different in the end. Every once in a while, man, does she have a bomb. It's horrible. And she'll say, is this any good? I'll go, this is horrible. Because I'm honest. But it happens like once every 100 meals. But I know once I say that, the next 99, oh my gosh, am I in for a treat. Martha didn't have the secret sauce that day. She didn't put into what she was doing a sense of excellence. She didn't give her best. She was more worried about her sister than she was the meal. A servant, a true servant understands that. Love and compassion somehow gets mixed in with chicken and pasta. I don't know how it happens, but it does. Ultimately, we're serving the Lord himself. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You ever walk down the sidewalk and this is any big city really. I went to Georgia State University for a couple years downtown and I'd I'd work till 4 or 5 a.m. and I'd get up and I'd go downtown, I'd get off the MARTA train and 
I'd encounter 10 homeless people on my way to class who probably had more money than I did at the time. And I used to walk to the other side of the street. I used to avoid them. I used to ignore them. On one hand, to my credit, I mean, they were obnoxious. But on the other hand, <laughs> I'd hate to think how many of them were really Christ in disguise. <laughs> I later got saved. Started thinking about that. Who don't you have time for? There's um, Isaiah 53, he was, they were astonished when they looked at Christ. He was so disfigured. They were paralyzed astonishment, it says in the Hebrew, basically. They, they were so sickened by his appearance that they couldn't look at him. But they almost had to look at him because of the level of how grotesque he was. You know, I think sometimes we see other people in that same light. We have to use discernment. We can't help every single person. Not, not every single person, really. They don't need as much help as we think they do. But the people that the Lord puts in your life, he equates our assistance to them equal to our assistance to him uh, who bought us. The servitude thing, is, it's, it's got all kind of levels of depth. And I think sometimes in the spirit of depth of insight of what the scripture has to say, it would do us well to at least consider uh, paradigm shifts from time to time. Mankind has put monarchs in place and in some countries, emperors with qualifications of some sort of deity. We can put religious figures in place, say they're infallible. I think we've elevated leadership so high above mankind sometimes that we've taken out of leadership any sense of servitude. What is the true, what is the true motivation of a public servant? What is the true motivation of a king? What is the true motivation of, of Putin? What have we done on this earth to put these people over us that exist not to serve? Not to serve? but to prosper for themselves. We've, we've so abandoned servitude at its purest sense that we no longer expect it. We no longer expect a level five leader in our culture. That's unbelievable. We, we no longer expect what we have the greatest need of. Someone whose leadership exists for our benefit, for the benefit of each individual, each individual, every individual. 
Servitude is, has been so diluted that we no longer talk about it. Show me the man who runs a corporation. Show me the woman who runs a corporation. Who selflessly serves his or her people, employees. Looks after their greatest good and provides the best product they possibly can. Makes a profit, but doesn't take advantage of anyone. Level five leaders. What if we continue to be a culture where mediocrity is acceptable, our best is no longer needed, excellence is a, a distant thought, and sacrifice and servitude have gone out the window? We end up with three, four, maybe five generations that it takes 20 generations to correct. I went to a memorial service where maybe 1,500 people sat on a Friday night to show respect for an elder in their church. Not an elder like the office of elder. An elder woman of God who exemplifies servanthood. I saw multiple generations of children, adults, young adults, peers to the woman deceased. I saw them sit there for two and a half hours, listening, singing, and honoring a fellow servant in their church. What an incredible example to the younger children. Then I wondered, how many more years Will it take if there's not a change when that Friday night service maybe not even take place? I can't remember the last time. I used to hear it all the time as a kid. Respect your elders. Sometimes I wonder if you said that today, you'd have to define the word respect and define the word elder. <laughs> It's just the way it is. But incumbent upon the servants of God is this question. How do we not accept it? How do we change it? How do we change that as parents? How do we change that as teachers? How do we change that as administrators? How do we change that as pastors and leaders? How do we change that? And in part, our culture, the one God's called us to live in and influence. Has an absentee father problem or a multiple father problem. It's an interesting time to live. And it's a very interesting time in which to be called a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very. Interesting. This, my friends, is a paradigm shift. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to use logic, 
Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. We are commanded to serve. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Therefore, an absence of service is the absence of love. The absence of obedience is the absence of love. Why, does, why do you go to church and we talk forever and ever about loving the Lord God more, more, and more? Because out of love comes obedience. Out of obedience comes servitude. Out of servitude comes a change in the kingdom and the kingdom's perspective. You can't have a social gospel without love for the Lord. You end up with a secularized way of ministering to problems without Jesus. Servitude. The absence of a want to when it comes to being a servant is the absence of love for the one we're serving. If we're not obedient to him, it's because we have a love deficit for him. Let's increase our love for him and our obedience will follow. Last thing I'll say is servitude is medicinal. The great violinist Niccolo Pagiani willed his marvelous violin to the city of Genoa, gave it to him, on a condition that it would never be played. What? The wood of such an instrument, while used and handled, wears only slightly, but set aside, it begins to decay. Pagiani's lovely violin has today become worm-eaten and useless, except as a relic. The Christian's unwillingness to serve may soon destroy his capacity for usefulness. If we lay down and die, we become useless. If we actively pursue serving others into the late end chapters of our life, we welcome vitality and life and energy and purpose and mission. Jonathan Kellen, Kenneth Galbraith in his autobiography, A Life in Our Times, illustrates the devotion of Emily Gloria Wilson. <laughs> Emily Gloria Wilson is an unusual bird. It was his family housekeeper. It had been a weary day and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, the phone rang and Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House and said to Emily, get me Ken Gilbreth. This is Lyndon Johnson. Her response, he is sleeping, Mr. President, and he said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, I work for him, not you. <laughs> when I called the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. Tell that woman I want her here working in the White House. <laughs> A servant of the Lord calls on the name of the Lord to acknowledge, to praise, to love, to extol his name. It is the worship of God 
that empowers us to overcome things that come between he and us. It gives us the want to, it gives us the anointing, it gives us the insight to be who he's called us to be. Worship the Lord and you'll be more of a true servant of the Lord. You'll have a desire to serve others that at one time irked you, annoyed you. By worshiping the Lord, what happens is you get more of a willingness to get into the dirtiness of ministry. I remember taking teenagers, we take them every year, to Bolivia. And they ministered to a subculture of street children, average age 11 to 13, who lived in the sewers beneath the city in Bolivia. They would go down into the sewers where the children would sniff glue and exist. I wouldn't even call it live. And the American teenager became enamored with this idea and couldn't wait to wake up in the morning to get to the sewers to minister to the children, their peers, and serve them. I thought, what's going on there? These are kids you couldn't get to clean their bedroom before the trip. What's going on here? Why are these young children serving their peers the way they are? One of the reasons was worship. One of them still now lives there and had married a man in that community and I'm not the least bit surprised. You gotta call on the name of the Lord for help. You have to call on him to be who he's called you to be and you call on him daily, hourly, you call on his name that'll answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. I have to learn what it means to give a message that's 99% serving and 1% not. How does this book serve people? That's my question at their point of need. But you may have different needs. I hearken back to what I said earlier. If you're here today and you basically endured three worship songs, you felt a disconnection, you couldn't break through, you couldn't communicate, you felt a sense of unworthiness, come to the altar. Not in anyone else's way, not mimicking anyone else, not doing what other people do, just what you do. You come up here and you kneel down and you put your head down there in the presence of God. And here's what you do. I'm calling on the name of the Lord. And let this name Jesus be on your lips. If you don't come up here and do anything but just say, Jesus, 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 he will hear you. He will hear you. Acknowledge him. Call him. 
You could be a young boy or young girl here today. I'm sure your parents would love for you to come up here. Nobody's in that big a hurry that they won't wait on you to come up here and call on the name of the Lord. You have a need for healing in your body today? In your back, headaches, migraines, tumors? Come up here and just rest and call on the name of the Lord that he will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. You don't have to figure this all out. You just have to call. Put in the call. We've got counselors and caregivers here. I know from time to time you're absolutely exhausted. Call on the name of the Lord. You've got children, adult children, that you don't quite understand why they're going through what they are or how they're going to deal with it, call on the name of the Lord. Your sin is greater than his mercy. No, it's not. Call on the name of the Lord. You need, you need freedom. You need healing. You need provision. Financial insecurity and lack is an incredible stress, an incredible stress. Call on the name of the Lord. You got a relationship issue, call on the name of the Lord. You haven't figured it out on your own, call on the name of the Lord. You wanna serve people, you just don't know what to do, call on the name of the Lord. Call that he may be found. Call on the name of the Lord. As the Lord, as the Spirit leads you, you come, you come.